Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Like I said, for the next uh, three Sundays, which isn't really Advent, uh, Advent began last Sunday, but during the next three Sundays of the Christmas season, uh, I want us as a church to consider some of the women of Christmas, some of them, not all of them. It'd be impossible to really cover all of them. I think you could make a case that the first woman of Christmas is Eve, and then you could just go forward from there. So we don't have like two years to look at every single woman that was anticipating and looking forward to the coming of Christ. But in Luke's gospel, he points out three women in particular. Uh, The first woman that we're going to consider today is Elizabeth. She was the mother of John the Baptist, and we're going to read of her story today. She was also a relative of Mary, who is the second woman who I'm sure you all know, the mother of Jesus, a young teenage girl who was impregnated. Even though she was a virgin, she bore the Son of God. And the third woman is lesser known, but she's an elderly woman named Anna, she uh, interacted with Jesus when he was brought into the temple after his birth as a baby. And she had waited in the temple, serving God every day in the temple for uh, approximately 60 years, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so we're gonna think about those three women over the next three weeks. And in some ways, these three women that we're going to look at, they couldn't be more different from each other than they are. I mean, in Elizabeth, uh, what you have is a woman who had been happily married for many years. She's not quite as old as Anna. She's not in her 80s. She's probably somewhere in her 40s, which in that time frame and era meant that you were nearing kind of the end of your life, lifespans being much shorter in that era than they are in ours. She was a settled woman, she was a mature woman, and she had found her niche in Israelite society. She was the wife of a priest who was serving in the temple. Uh, Mary, in a lot of ways, was the opposite to Elizabeth. She was young, uh, perhaps around 13 years of age. Like I said, the lifespans were much shorter, and so women would begin a family much earlier than we're used to in our modern context and society. She was unmarried, but she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. Anna, the third woman, was 84 years old, Luke tells us in his gospel. That means she was, uh, lived an abnormally long life for, again, that era. And her husband had died seven years into their marriage, and so she had devoted the entirety of her widowhood to serving God, waiting on God. And she was waiting specifically for a thing called the redemption of Israel, or the redemption of Jerusalem, which we'll think about when we look at her life in a few weeks. So what we have here in these three women that are all found in Luke chapter one and in Luke chapter two is an upper middle-aged married woman, an unmarried teenage woman, and an elderly widow. But for all of their differences, all the things that were not similar between these three women, there was an attribute that was shared. 
Uh, they were all lovers of God. They loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so what that meant is that they all loved the Bible. Even young Mary as a teenage girl, when she begins to sing and prophesy, out of her mouth comes scripture, quotations from the deep cuts of the Old Testament. They were familiar with the Bible. And because they were familiar with the Bible, they were waiting for the redemption of God's people. They were waiting for God to revive his people. They were waiting for the day of the Lord. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They all had this anticipation and desire. And they all lived during a very dark time in Israel's history. Some of you might have a loose understanding of the stories of the Old Testament. And so maybe for you, as you're thinking about the people of Israel, you might think about some of the more victorious moments in their history. You might think about the time that they were enslaved in Egypt and Moses with the rod and staff and plagues delivered them from their captivity in Egypt. Or you might think of the time when David ascended to the throne in Israel, and his son Solomon took the reins from him after his death, and they expanded the glory of Israel. You might be thinking of times like that in Israel's history, times of conquest, times of power, times where God's presence was thick and felt among his people. Uh, but these three women did not live during that type of time in the people or nation of Israel. They lived in a dark time. They lived in a time where God had been silent with them now for over 400 years. And the last little prophecy that they were clinging to came from the lips and pen of a prophet named Malachi. And he had told them that they should wait for the day of the Lord and that before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah came, Elijah, the great and famous prophet of old, would return and spark a revival among God's people before the Lord came. That's what these women, all of them, were waiting for. But as the years ticked by, hardly anyone in Israel had that longing or desire. They thought, Elijah is never coming. But these three women, they held fast. And that's where the story begins. So let's start off reading in Luke chapter one, verse five. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We'll pause the reading for a moment. What we have here at the very beginning or the very outset is our first woman, Elizabeth. I like to call her Queen Elizabeth. And here she appears along with her husband, Zechariah. Zechariah was, we learn, active as a priest but both of them belonged to the priestly line. She belonged to the line of Aaron himself. And both of them loved and served God, it says. It says in verse six that they blamelessly walked in God's commandments. But Luke is quick to point out another detail about their lives. Not only were they incredibly godly, not only were they obedient to God with everything that they were, but they were advanced in years and still they'd had no child. So they're childless. Now, this would be a painful thing for many couples in any era to experience. 
but it was especially devastating in the era in which they lived, especially for Elizabeth as the woman. In that era, your children were your heritage. Uh, They were your social safety net, the ones that would provide for you when you were older. They were your mission in life, especially for the mother, especially for the women. But every time Zechariah and Elizabeth read passages in scripture, like Psalm 127's, the fruit of the womb is a reward from God, it would have stung them. They would have felt like, what are we doing wrong? What happened to us? And no matter what they tried, they could not conceive. And it tells us that Elizabeth bore the blame. They assumed, it says in verse seven, that Elizabeth was the one who was barren. So let's continue on in their story. It says in verse eight, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have great Uh, have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah in verse 18 said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He was very diplomatic when it came to his wife's age. I'm an old man, she's not an old woman, advanced in years. And the angel said to him in verse 19, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And we'll stop there for a moment. Here we discover that Zechariah, uh, it tells us, was given what was really a rare opportunity. There were so many priests in Israel by that time that it was a once in a lifetime experience to have your name chosen by lot to go in and offer one of the daily prayers on behalf of God's people to the Lord. And while Zechariah was there on his big day, Uh, He was visited by the angel Gabriel. You might have noticed that he was afraid when he saw Gabriel. So apparently not a naked little baby with wings, but a terrifying figure. He's blown away at the presence of this being. And Gabriel tells Zechariah that his prayer had been heard, that he and Elizabeth would have a child. 
And he went on to say that this child will have a special calling upon his life. Zechariah, you're waiting for the coming of Elijah. Well, this child is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to fulfill Malachi's uh, ancient predictions. And then Gabriel told him, you'll name him John, and he uh, will live a sanctified, set-apart life. Uh, He'll live an ascetic life. He won't drink alcohol of any kind. He's going to be different. Now, we saw there that Zechariah struggled to believe the angel's promise. And the way it reads to me is that the angel struggled to believe Zechariah's doubt. You know, he's like, I'm Gabriel. I don't know if you know where I came from, but I've just, I just saw God. He's very able to do this. So partly as a punishment, and I think partly as a sign, Zechariah was muted until John's birth. I mean, think about the whispers that would have gone out about John his whole childhood. That's the kid whose dad was mute during his mom's entire pregnancy. And then when he was born, was able to speak and spoke words of prophecy. I mean, it would have prepared the way for John to prepare the way for Jesus. So for nine months, Zechariah said nothing. Think about Zechariah's life. I mean, the last thing that he said were words of doubt, (laughs) For nine months, he has to have those words ringing in his ears. How can this be? I'm such an idiot. Why did I say that? And then nine months later, the next words out of his mouth, prophecy, praise, songs of faith. But that brings us to Elizabeth. She's the focus of our attention today. She speaks three times in scripture, and this is the first time. It says, after these days, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Like I said, this is the first episode of three in which Elizabeth speaks. And what we learn here is that after she became pregnant, she, it says, hid herself for a period of five months. We don't know why she hid herself for uh, those five months, perhaps she hid herself out of embarrassment. You know, um, maybe the idea being, you know, I'm, I'm so old, I, I obviously haven't had a child up to this point, everybody knows about it, I, I can't go out and about, and if someone was to say like, hey, do you, you, wanna, you wanna go on a hike or something, and I have to say like, well, actually, I, you know, I need to kind of take care of myself right now, I'm an older woman, and, and I'm, I, nobody knows this yet, I'm not really showing, but I'm pregnant. Perhaps she was kind of anticipating other people rolling their eyes like, yeah, right, Elizabeth, that is not possible. Let me talk some science to you or something like that. Uh, Maybe she wanted to wait until it was obviously true that she was pregnant. Many women in undeveloped parts of the world where without ultrasounds or without pregnancy tests will suffer from a condition called pseudosiesis. We don't have it much in cultures like ours because we can easily... uh, you know, tell whether someone is pregnant or not with these medical advances. But it's a condition where when a woman wants a baby so badly but is unable to have a baby, sometimes the brain will tell the body you're pregnant and the body will begin to respond as if it's pregnant. I wonder if Elizabeth had endured a false pregnancy like that in her past 
or if she'd known others who had experienced a false pregnancy like that. I think that she wanted to wait to be sure that Gabriel's prediction had come to pass. But what I really want you to see are three things about this woman, starting with this in this first passage, that she committed herself to God. Number one, she committed herself to God. Uh, Had Elizabeth been like most people, she would have abandoned God a long time ago. Um, She would have been going through her trial saying, I've been asking God for a child. He hasn't given me a child, and so I'm giving up on God. I don't trust him anymore. He's not faithful with me and my life. But instead of doing that, Elizabeth committed herself to God. It's like she doubled down on her devotion to the Lord despite her difficulty and tragedy. She prayed, I think, not only for a kid, but she prayed for an Elijah-led revival. That was the last word that she'd received from the prophet at the end of the Old Testament. She cried out to God right along with Zechariah for that revival to occur amongst his people. And she waited and waited, committing herself to God. I think it's important to note that though they were righteous and they were godly, and Luke makes note of their righteousness, note of Zechariah and Elizabeth's godly living, we have to notice that they were not immune from very difficult trials despite their godliness. This is a far cry from the way a lot of people think that Christianity works. There are modern, twisted versions of Christianity where obedience to God in the minds of some must lead to health and prosperity. Uh, There are, of course, very extreme versions of this where if I really walk with God, if I really have faith, I'm gonna get a jet, I'm gonna get big hair, and I'm gonna get fancy clothes or something like that. But I think that we have to be careful that we don't laugh at caricatures like that and dismiss them and say, I don't fall prey to that doctrine in any way myself at all. No, I think a lot of us think that if we walk with God, at the very least, God owes us an Instagram-worthy life. But that is not at all the case. Here you see these godly people engaged in a massive trial. They were godly and in pain. And here's the thing, they might have wondered during all of those years, why isn't God blessing us? And if they had asked that question, if they had wondered that, they would have been dead wrong in their question. God was blessing them. They just couldn't see it yet because they lacked the perspective of what God was doing. You see, to be a parent of John the Baptist, you had to be ready. You had to be prepared for that responsibility, prepared for that mission. Like Hannah in the Old Testament when God was looking for a new spiritual leader to direct the nation and he could find no one living, Hannah, through her barrenness, became willing to give her child to God. She finally came to the place of saying, God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And that's exactly what God needed, a blank slate, a fresh canvas. And Hannah's child, Samuel, became just that. Through the trial, Hannah was being prepared. And through this trial, Zechariah and Elizabeth 
were being prepared for the role of being John the Baptist's parents. In fact, personally, I don't think young parents could have handled the kind of life that John was called to live. A younger mother might not have easily parted with her son when he went to go out into the wilderness for many days to spend time alone with God. She might have even said to him things like, son, don't be so radical. There's other easier ways to serve God. Join me, join your dad in the temple. We're, we're priests, he's a priest and I'm supporting him. We, you could just do that. But Elizabeth, because God prepared her, was willing to commit her child to the Lord. When the time came, Elizabeth would donate her son to God. She was that type of woman. How do we know that? Well, because when things were hard in her life as it was, she committed her own self to God. So she was already prone to committing her child to God. And I think Elizabeth's commitment to God stands out as an exhortation for all of us here this morning. You know, there are times where we're in personal distress, or there are times where we are in societal distress. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were living through both. They were in societal distress, the very people of God who had in their past gained victory over Pharaoh and victory in the promised land were now servants of Rome and living like a vassal state under Roman oppression. But they were also going through personal tragedy, not just societal darkness, but personal darkness. And we must do the same thing that Elizabeth did. What did she do? Well, she thought about what Malachi the prophet had said. The word that God had left them before the mic dropped and he had said, obey the scripture, pray for revival among God's people and wait for the coming of the Lord. We're supposed to do the very same thing today, personally and as a church. Let's obey the word together. Let's pray for revival among God's people together. And let's wait for second Christmas when Jesus comes again. In that moment, God will do for us what he did for Elizabeth when she said in verse 25, he would take, he took away my reproach from me. God will take away our reproach from us on that day. We have to be like Elizabeth and remain faithful. Paul the Apostle said it this way. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he said, for this light momentary affliction, and for a little bit of conflict uh, context, Paul had just basically said, you know, I've been beaten, I've uh, endured all kinds of tragedy, I've, I've had people beat me up and throw me in prison and all this stuff. This light momentary affliction, he said, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All right, so that's the first thing about Elizabeth. She committed to God. And we must commit to God even in periods of darkness. Don't be like those believers who say, God, I will commit to you if you bring me into a period of goodness. Say, God, I will commit to you even if I have to go through a period of darkness. Amen? All right, the second thing, though, that we'll see happens in the second episode 
in which Elizabeth appeared. And for some context, it happened right after Gabriel met with Mary, who was Elizabeth's younger relative. Gabriel told the young virgin that she would give birth to the messianic descendant of David, who would sit on David's throne forever and ever, that he be the son of God. And well, Gabriel said these things to Mary, he also told Mary and your relative Elizabeth, she also is pregnant right now. So Mary decided to go and visit with Elizabeth. So let's read of their encounter together. It's beautiful to me. It says in verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, to me, this is one of the most majestic exchanges in all of God's word. Mary goes on this journey. She's just a young girl. She's just heard that she's pregnant with the son of God. And she goes to Elizabeth's home, and when she comes into the doorway, Zechariah is nowhere to be found, but Elizabeth is the one who comes forward. Mary, at this point, is not even showing yet. She's not obviously pregnant in any way. She just looks like a young, probably about 13-year-old girl. But when these two women meet with each other, uh, prenatal John the Baptist begins to leap for joy inside of Elizabeth's womb due to the presence of prenatal Jesus inside of Mary's womb. And Elizabeth, she just starts prophesying. She declares that Mary and the baby within her are blessed. In other words, Elizabeth was able to look inside of both wombs she had spiritual insight into what was happening. She said, John, my baby, has joy. That's why he's doing this. And your baby is the Lord. She had insight. And in humility, Elizabeth wondered aloud why she was granted a visit by the mother of her Lord. And then she celebrated Mary and her faith by saying, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Like, good for you, Mary. You believed the angel when he came and spoke to you. My husband, he did not believe. And it didn't go so well for him. Now, in all this, Elizabeth transmitted for God. Right? This is the second thing I want you to see about this woman. She committed to God, but she also transmitted for God. What I mean by that is that she became the mouthpiece of God. She was speaking for God. She was the voice of comfort and encouragement and confirmation to a young woman, Mary, who was on an impossible mission. I mean, who else, think about it, who else could Mary have talked to about her predicament? 
Can you imagine how that would have gone with her parents? Imagine how it would have gone with the other 13-year-old girls at school. No, there was nobody on earth that she could have easily and comfortably spoken with about what was happening within her, except for because of God's provision, Elizabeth. Elizabeth would have to a degree understood. And when Mary came through the door, Elizabeth, by the spirit, man, she was ready. She flooded Mary's ears with words and truths that would fill the young girl with even more faith. If there was any doubt in Mary's mind when she was on that journey to visit Elizabeth, the fact that the aged Elizabeth could look inside of her body and see the unseen, it would have comforted her. It would have helped her know this is God. God has done this thing. I think that Elizabeth was the perfect friend in Mary's time of need. She was willing to serve as God's mouthpiece to a young and troubled soul. And I love it because she doesn't pull rank in any way. I mean, she could have pulled the rank of being older than Mary. She could have pulled the rank of being married while Mary was not yet married. She could have even pulled the rank of, I'm much further along in my pregnancy than you are. Look at me and how I'm showing and oh, my back hurts and you got it so easy in this early part of your pregnancy. But that's not at all what she did. She humbled herself and she ministered to this woman. And I think every one of us needs a friend like Elizabeth from time to time. And I think every one of us should strive to be friends like Elizabeth at all times. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthian church, he said, I wish every one of you desired and had the gift of prophecy. And when he was saying that, he wasn't saying, I wish all of you were able to predict the future. He went on to explain what he meant by the gift of prophecy. He said, prophecy, you know, the gift of edifying and encouraging and upbuilding another human being. Paul's vision for the body of Christ was a group of people that were just doing that for each other constantly, edifying, encouraging, and comforting one another. And Elizabeth certainly offered that to this young woman named Mary. And we especially need those kind of voices when we find ourselves in a Mary-like situation. Now, I, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, Mary-like situation, there's never been another situation like the one that Mary has been in. So I guess if that ever happens to me, I'll look for an Elizabeth. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Mary had made a fresh decision to obey God. And when you come to a point in your life where you freshly decide to commit yourself to obedience to God, you especially in those moments, when it's still new, before the new grooves have been cut, before the patterns have been established, before the track has been laid, you need people to be in your life encouraging you in that direction that you've committed to. You see this so often with younger people when they want to so desperately make a commitment to walking with the Lord, but don't know how to and need voices of encouragement helping to continue to push them in that direction. I read a study one time a few, a few years ago, pretty robust study, it was actually a whole book about young people in the church. And 
One thing that the researchers discovered is that young people who have close friends in the church have much more success, this is no surprise, engaging with their church, studying the Bible, and serving God. Now, what they found is, quote, that as the number of close friends at church gets closer to five, so does the likelihood that someone will walk with God. Now, that number is not in the Bible. It's just an observation. But five, how cool is that? To kind of have a mentality or a goal, like apparently that's what I need. If I get close to five, I mean, it's like approach is five. So four, I guess. You can't really have like 4.3 friends. I mean, maybe you could, but like, well, you're like my best .3 buddy. <laughs> but the idea is that we need support to walk with the Lord. This holds up to the importance that friendship has uh, as stated in scripture. For example, Proverbs 27 verse nine says it like this. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Now we understand what's being said here, but probably not as well as they would have understood it in the agrarian culture that first received that proverb. If you lived in a place like they lived in, uh, you would hardly ever get the scent of incense or perfume. That was a luxury. And you often smelled the scent or the evidence of animals. And so in a world that smells like animal poo, when you smell perfume or incense, it's like, wow, that's refreshing. And that's what he's saying a good friend and their counsel is like in life. You're trucking along, you don't know what to do, you're discouraged, and then bang, the text pops up, or the coffee date happens, and great counsel is received, and it's like, wow, we've cut through the fog, and I feel refreshed. Or here's one from Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. How cool is that? A couple of godly people getting together, they have a sharpening impact on each other's lives. Pastor Tim Challies wrote a book for men, but he said something that I think applies to all of us. He said, examine your friendships. Not all friendships are helpful because not all friendships are truly spiritual. Many Christian men spend all of their time with those who don't know Christ, robbing their own soul of the benefits of a spiritual friendship. Examine your friendships to ensure you have friends who are wise and that you are not spending inordinate amounts of time with fools. As guys, we kind of need it black and white, <laughs> confrontational like that. But yeah, we have to take an assessment of who we're around at times because we need encouragement. Okay, let's look at one last episode that Elizabeth has found in. She committed to God, she transmitted for God. But the final episode occurred on the eighth day of John's life. John was born, and on the eighth day of a Jewish boy's life, they would go through a circumcision ceremony, and there they would be named, or their name would be proclaimed to the public. So let's read of what happened in verse 57 of chapter one. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. 
And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. I always love that because it just says that Zechariah was mute. (laughs) I think he could hear just fine. (laughs) Inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now in this last episode, something fascinating happened. It came time to name this little miracle baby. And the townspeople, the friends and family of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they did something super presumptuous. Uh, They just assumed that because Zechariah couldn't speak, that meant that Zechariah couldn't name the baby, and they didn't even consult with Elizabeth and ask her her opinion. Instead, they just said, well, it must be our duty and responsibility to name the child. Uh, If you wonder if you have pushy relatives, have a baby and you'll figure it out. (laughs) They bring out all the crazy in a family. This was not common in their culture. This was not a normal thing to have done in that culture. And then they took it a step further and decided we're gonna name the baby Zechariah. We're gonna name him after his father. This also was not normal in that culture. In fact, it was looked down upon if a Jewish man named his child after himself. It was like an unthinkable kind of thing. You just didn't do it in that culture. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, Zechariah can't speak anymore. He can't offer prayers in the temple on behalf of uh, the people anymore. He can't really do his job anymore as a priest. So this baby will be like a new Zechariah. He'll replace his father. But Elizabeth speaks up And she says, no, he will be called John, which helps us understand that her and Zechariah had figured out, like any married couple would, a way to communicate. And Zechariah had told her the story of what had happened inside of the temple. She might have been tired after a week of living with this little baby. She might have been wiped out from labor and still recovering, but she gets up enough energy to put her foot down and say, no, he's not a Zechariah. His name is John. Now, what I want to say lastly about Elizabeth, this woman who committed her life to God, who uh, communicated for God, is that she was here submitting to God. And what I mean by that is not that she was merely submitting to the name that God said that he had chosen for this child. By naming him John, she was submitting not just to the name, but to the calling and the life that John would have to live. Now, this was a big deal for her. Elizabeth was what you would call an elder mother. And this baby satisfied the longing of her soul that she'd had for many decades. But she knew in her mind, in her heart, and in her soul, I can't keep him. He really doesn't fully belong to me. He has to live a life in the spirit. He's gonna have to go into the wilderness. He's gonna have to be obedient to God. 
You see, Elizabeth was a godly woman and she knew that Israel needed a new prophet, that Israel needed an Elijah-like figure to spark them into revival. She knew that. But she was a mom. She also knew what Israelites did to their prophets. They killed them. And so it was a huge deal for her to name him John and submit herself to God's plan. As I said earlier, God had prepared this woman for this level of submission. Her theology of pain was fully developed at this point. She was not one of those believers that was expecting an easy life in any way. She knew what it looked like to walk with God yet endure hardship. She knew that the light would eventually break through, but she was willing to do whatever it took to get to that point. As I quoted Psalm 127 earlier, it says in the fourth verse of that Psalm, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And Elizabeth thought about this baby like that. He's like an arrow in a bow. He's like a weapon in God's hands and he belongs to God. But I think she might've realized the wisdom of God in not allowing her a child in her youth, like the Psalm said, but only in her old age. Because they were in their latter years, Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably more than likely dead by the time John's public ministry was in full steam. And when John was arrested and then imprisoned and then beheaded cruelly by Herod, Elizabeth was probably not alive to witness those horrific events, events that no parent would ever want to see. God had chosen the perfect time for her to give birth to a child like this. So she submitted herself to God's plan. How about us this morning? Are we willing to submit to God? When other voices collude together to try to get us to do something out of step and in disobedience to God, like Elizabeth's family and friends unknowingly did to her, do we put our foot down? Do we use the magic word that Elizabeth used in that moment, the word no? She says, no, he will be named John. And we should, we should use that word because we cannot say yes to God if we're unwilling to say no to so many things that will come our way. So here we have Elizabeth, this incredibly godly woman. She had a steadfast hope in God. She spoke for God. Her determined obedience to God paved the way for the Son of God. And my prayer is that we would just be more and more a people who are able to emulate Elizabeth by walking righteously even while still in a period of darkness. You know, here we are at Christmas time, and as we consider the beauty of the first advent, we're still, of course, looking forward to the time when Jesus comes again. He came once, that's what Christmas is about, but he's going to come again. And we're thankful for that because everything is not as it should be. And when Jesus returns, He'll lift our reproach from us, all the brokenness that we feel and see. It will be redeemed by the Lord. This is important for us because one of the more celebrated facets of 
the Christmas season in our popular culture is the warmth and joy of friendships and family. I mean, it's hard not to listen to Christmas music or watch a Christmas movie uh, or even just go to Starbucks without being kind of wrapped up in that messaging. This is a beautiful time. This is a warm time. This is a loving time. This is a time where we all put our arms around each other and we just get along. But I think as the years tick by, it gets harder and harder for some of us to believe any of that. It gets hard for us to believe that the animosity is somehow gone, that the despair and the brokenness are somehow gone. And besides all that, societally, we can't forget our own disappointments just because it's Christmas time. We can't forget the times when life is anything but what we're watching in a Hallmark movie. But rather than be disgusted by all the hype and turning it off, I think what we should do instead is realize that all of that, it's actually just the guttural cry of humanity for something that we cannot attain on our own. In other words, we all want peace on earth. We all want goodwill towards men. But like a Miss America pageant winner, we can't just say it and expect it to happen. We long for it, we desire it. But one day, Jesus, who wants it more than any of us, will return and banish sin and pain and brokenness and injustice for his people. As Malachi said, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and he, Jesus, will reign forever. So let's be like Elizabeth, faithfully walking with God while hoping in God, using this Christmas season as another signpost to a more glorious day to come. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.